have asked her, Leo. Well, I just wanted to start by saying that uh, my heart is still full uh, with joy and gratitude over all the prayers and all the love and all the encouragement that was showed to me last week. It was a really, really sweet time. I want to thank you all again. And I also want to thank you for this pulpit Bible. It is very, very nice. Now, you probably noticed before when I preached it, I usually just, uh, you know, with, the, with modern electronics, uh, you know, I just cut and paste my text and put it right into the manuscript. But I really feel like I can't do that anymore because this is much too nice a Bible. I have got to use this. So turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Here we are. And we're going to read a bit of an extended uh, portion from verse 12 through 33. Okay. Starting in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on, it, sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they then remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard what he had done, that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see, that this is gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now among those who went to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come 
to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would bless this reading and this proclaiming of your word. Pray that you would open our hearts. Help me, Lord God, to explain it well and bless this precious people of yours. In Jesus' name. Well, if you are following a traditional liturgical calendar, today is Palm Sunday. It marks the beginning of what is traditionally called Holy Week, which started out with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on a Sunday, which is what we just read about, followed by the Last Supper and his arrest on Thursday evening, and in his crucifixion, death, and burial on Good Friday. That the triumphal entry into Jerusalem was a significant event is underscored by the fact that it is recorded in all four Gospels. Matthew mentions it in chapter 1, and then he devotes one-third of his entire Gospel to the last week of Jesus' life. Mark mentions it in chapter 11 and devotes about 40% of his gospel to that last week. Luke mentions Jesus' entry into Jerusalem in chapter 19 and devotes one-fourth of his gospel to this final week of Jesus' earthly life. Today, we have read this event from the gospel John, who devoted about half of his gospel to that one last week of Jesus' earthly life. You will notice in the text that we just read, and also in the parallel text in the other gospel, that the word triumph or triumphal entry are nowhere to be found. That is reserved for the paragraph headings, which of course are not divinely inspired. Yet, this event has traditionally been called Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And to be sure, it was. But, and this is the main point I want to take away from today's text. What most people think of as triumph, the world's view of triumph is diametrically opposed to what is considered triumph in the kingdom of God. Again, the main point. The world's view of triumph is diametrically opposed to what is considered triumph in the kingdom of God. 
divide today's passage under three headings as follows. Number one, the messianic prophecy fulfilled yet misunderstood. The messianic prophecy fulfilled yet misunderstood in verses 12 to 19. Verses 20 to 24, I would call the hour has come. And then verses 25 to 33, Jesus triumphs by obeying the Father's will. Jesus triumphs by obeying the Father's will. Okay, point one, the messianic prophecy fulfilled yet misunderstood. The Passover feast is approaching and Jerusalem is buzzing. Jews and even God-fearing Gentiles are flocking to Jerusalem from all over Palestine and even from elsewhere in the Roman Empire. Of course, this sort of thing happened every year, but this year was different. News had spread all over the nation about one Jesus of Nazareth, a holy man of God who taught eloquently about the kingdom of God, who stood up to corrupt and legalistic religious leaders, and who showed incredible acts of kindness by miraculously healing the sick and delivering the demon-possessed. And Jerusalem was especially buzzing over reports that just recently Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Many Jews were hopeful, if not convinced, that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, the anointed son of David, who would restore the kingdom of Israel, displacing the hated Romans and ushering in a kingdom of peace and righteousness in a land flowing with milk and honey where everyone would contentedly live under their own vine and fig tree. That was the longing of every true son of Israel, and they saw in Jesus all the earmarks of the long-promised Messiah, at least as far as they understood. The only question was, when would Jesus make his move, declaring himself to be the rightful king of Israel? It looked like the day had finally arrived. We read, starting in verse 12, that the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it's written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. The crowds that greeted him were waving palm branches. Now, why the palm branches? In his commentary on the book of John, D.A. Carson points out that there's nothing in the Old Testament that calls for the use of palm branches during Passover. So why the palm branches? Palm branches, the Old Testament does call for a celebratory waving of palm branches during the Feast of Tabernacles, not at Passover. 
But Carson goes on to point out that from about two centuries earlier, palm branches had already become a national, if not a nationalist symbol. When Simon the Maccabee drove the Syrian forces out of Jerusalem's citadel, he was feted with music and palm branches. In short, waving of palm branches was no longer restrictively associated with the Feast of Tabernacles. In this instance, it may well have signaled nationalist hope that a messianic liberator was arriving on the scene. That was the hope of the crowd, that this was the hope of the crowd is further underscored by their cries of Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us now, save us, Hosanna. Some details provided in the other accounts clearly show that they were hoping for Jesus to declare himself to be the rightful heir of the, of the Davidic throne. In Mark 11, 9 and 10, it says, And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And in Luke 19, again, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessing is a, blessing, blessed is the king, coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is a direct quote from Psalm 118, which was widely understood to be messianic in nature. And of course, the crowd was not entirely wrong because Jesus was and is the promised Messiah. He does not reject the adulation of the crowd. To be sure, the Pharisees had a problem with what the crowd was shouting, but Jesus didn't. In Luke 19, it says, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples! And he answered, I'll tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The praise and acclamation that Jesus received on that first Palm Sunday was entirely appropriate. But there was a major lacuna, a major gap in the crowd's understanding of who Jesus was and what he came to do. And we begin to see this in verses 14 and 15. And Jesus, was, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Yes, this was a direct um, fulfillment of what was said in Zechariah, but I don't think the crowd was expecting him to come in on a donkey. If Jesus wanted to come as a conquering king to throw out the Romans and bring about a political and military liberation, he would have ridden on a war horse. And the only time in the Bible where we see Jesus on a war horse is in Revelation 19, denoting an event yet to come, when he will come again and set us free from all bondage and evil and bring about a new heaven and a new earth. But for this occasion, he chose to ro ride on a donkey's colt, 
in fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah. And we'll read from there. It's a more fuller telling of it. It says, Rejoice greatly. This is Zechariah 9, verses 9 to, I look like 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Far from coming as a conquering king on a war horse, he chooses to come humbly on a donkey. In fact, the prophecy says that he will cut off the war horse from Jerusalem and he shall speak peace to the nations and his rule shall be not the borders of Israel but from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As we know from this side of the cross, Jesus would not have been able to do that had he literally fulfilled the crowd's expectations? Well, actually he could have. He could have climbed the steps of the temple and declared himself to be king of Israel, which he rightfully was and is. He could have told the crowd that they no longer needed to submit to Rome, and he could have even done it without violence. With supernatural power at his disposal, he could have simply restrained the Romans from reacting. I think of the time in the book of Samuel when um, Saul was rejected as king and David was anointed king and uh, David was hiding out with Samuel and Saul sent messengers to go get David away from Samuel. He should have known better than to mess with Samuel because what happened to those messengers that came? The Spirit of the Lord fell on them and they just fell over and prophesied, and he sent more messengers, and they just fell over and prophesied, and then the same thing happened to Saul himself. He could have done that with the Romans. Just no violence, just restrained them. Okay? He could have done, he, he could have done all of that. And he could have done that to the Romans and anyone else who opposed his rule. And he would have brought peace and a just rule to a restored kingdom of Israel. That's what everyone wanted. And as the sinless second Adam, he would have lived and ruled forever, even until today. But, but, the subjects of his kingdom would continue to live out their days and die, and they would still be in their sins. And we're still, for you and me, who are not descendants of Abraham, we would continue to be, as it says in Ephesians 2, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. 
Jesus came to fulfill the messianic prophecy, not just for the Jews, but also for all those made in God's image. And to do that, he had to forego his absolute right to be declared an earthly king. And for that, he would need to go to the cross. And that brings us to our second heading. The hour has come. Verses 20 to 24. Now among the Jews who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them. He does this a few times. He Someone gives them what they think is a very, very important question or request. And Jesus answers in such a way that doesn't really answer the question because there's something more important going on. Okay. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Though the event of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is recorded in all four of the Gospels, John is the only one who includes this anecdote about a group of Greek worshipers wanting to see Jesus. He doesn't say why they wanted to see him. Some have suggested that this incident occurred a few days later after Jesus had cleared the temple of the merchants and the money changers, and therefore what he in effect did, he cleared the court of the Gentiles from all the ungodly commercial activity that was going on there. So maybe the, these Greeks just wanted to say thank you. Could have been. We just don't know. Another thing that we don't know is whether they, in fact, got to see Jesus, though I would like to think that they did. Jesus' answer did not directly address the request, but instead redirected their attention to something far more important. The request from these non-Jews somehow served as a pivot point, which again brought to the forefront of Jesus' mind what he came to do. He did not come to save the Jews politically and militarily to establish an earthly kingdom, but he came to save both Jew and Gentile from the bondage of sin and death and usher in the kingdom of God. I describe this as a pivot point in the gospel because of Jesus' statement, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He uses the same term down in verse 27 when he says, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Now, John in his gospel has used this term hour th frequently throughout his narrative. Up until now, he was referring to that hour as something that had not yet come. Namely, that hour is a time for him to go to the cross. Way back in chapter 2, a much happier time, at the wedding feast of Cana, where Jesus was about to turn the water into wine, 
after a, a request from his mother, what was his first response? He said, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Of course, despite that, he went on to perform an amazing miracle of turning water into some really good wine, much to the delight of everyone who was at the wedding feast. Later on in chapter 7, when his unbelieving brothers were trying to goad him into going to the Feast of Tabernacles and revealing his intentions prematurely, he said, my time has not yet come. Later on in the same chapter, when he eventually did go to the feast, some of the authorities were seeking to arrest, to arrest him, but John adds, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But here in chapter 12, Jesus affirms that the hour has indeed come for him to do what he came to Jerusalem to do. Indeed, what he came into the world to do, to offer up his life as a ransom for our sins and reconcile to himself both Jew and Gentile. This was the pivotal moment where there was no turning back. To me, I think that this was even a greater temptation than when he was tempted by the devil's empty promises that were given to him in the wilderness. When the devil tempted Jesus to avoid the cross by saying, I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth if you will bow down and worship me. First of all, the devil is a liar and the father of lies, and I don't think those kingdoms of the world were his to give anyway. But in any event, here in Jerusalem, he's surrounded by adoring crowds who would do anything he asked. Jesus again faces a major temptation. Why not do what the crowd wants? Why not declare himself king and set up an earthly kingdom? Because that is not what he came to do. He came to perfectly obey the Father's will, going to the cross, and now, now that hour has indeed come. And this brings us to our final point. Jesus has triumphed. Jesus triumphs by obeying the Father's will. Verses 25 to 33. I'll read it again. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has not come for my sake, but for yours. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death 
he was going to die. Ah, there are so many directions I can go with this very rich section of Holy Scripture. The whole episode of the Father audibly answering Jesus' prayer for the entire crowd to hear, interesting enough, that was not of utmost importance to Jesus. He told the crowds he didn't so much need to hear that voice, but it was for their benefit rather than his. The important thing for him is that the prayer, Father, glorify your name, was being answered. The answer was, I have glorified it, the Father said. How did the Father glorify his name? How had he done it? Well, up to that moment, the Father had been glorifying his name through everything that Jesus had said and done through his life of perfect obedience. But the Father added that he will glorify it again. How's that going to happen? It was going to happen with Jesus' ultimate triumph. Not a military triumph to overthrow the powers that be in Jerusalem, but he was going to triumph by willingly and obediently going to the cross to triumph over the power of sin and death. Jesus said that he would be lifted up from the earth and draw all men to himself. And John adds it that he said this to indicate the type of death that he was going to die. This is how the Father was going to glorify his name again. And in the world's eyes, that statement is utter nonsense. The spectacle of the cross in the world's eyes is anything but glorious. It is shameful, ignominious, scandalous, and ugly. In the world's eyes, far from being a triumph, it was the epitome of defeat. But the world's values are upside down. Jesus didn't ask to be saved from this hour, but he triumphed by going through and doing what he came to do, no matter how infinitely painful and costly it would be. He triumphed not by winning, so to speak. He triumphed by his perfect obedience, which in, the earl, which in the world's eyes was losing. And in so doing, he not only liberates those who believe in him from the bondage of sin and death, but he also lays down the perfect law of the kingdom of God. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, from this side of the cross, it is easy for us to look down on those who wanted a political Messiah. But let's face it, that's what we would have wanted too. The problem is not in desiring to be free from oppression, to live a peaceful, free, and comfortable life. These are good things that God tells us to pray for. When we, when we pray for our leaders, he tells us, pray for your leaders so that you will lead a peaceful and quiet life. Those are all good things. And God willing, he often gives us these gifts. 
The problem is not that we want too much. The problem is that we want too little. What does it mean to triumph? It does not mean to win in the eyes of the world. Triumph is to be faithfully obedient and faithful no matter what the cost. It means that we are faithful to our Lord Jesus when it takes us to places where we would rather not go. The book of Hebrews tells us, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So how do we triumph at Living Hope Church? We triumph by imitating our Lord, by persevering in faith and obedience no matter what the cost. And I have certainly witnessed that in your lives. As you know and as you have experienced, we have seen a lot of heartache lately. We've seen a lot of, we've seen some untimely deaths, some near deaths, some debilitating illnesses, even among people who should be in the prime of life, terminal illnesses in our families, chronic pain for some. These are all part of living in a fallen world. We have gone through, through things like this, and I say we because when one of us experiences these things, we all experience these things. And that is one way we triumph, by loving each other and supporting each other through these trials, showing the love of Christ to each other, praying for each other, and most of all, staying faithful to our Savior, come what may. Now, lest you get the wrong impression, Jesus didn't go to the cross for the sake of going to the cross. He went to the cross for the joy set before him. After the unmitigated horror of the crucifixion on Good Friday came the unmitigated joy of the resurrection on Easter Sunday. We are not mere stoics or gluttons for punishment. We simply entrust ourselves to our God and Savior and faithfully obey, come what may. And we know that even in this life, God knows how to give good gifts to his children. And we've been recipients of those good gifts as well, have we not? We have enjoyed great friendship, love for one another, partnership in the gospel, living together in unity. And I do pray and I believe this is going to happen that 
the Lord will send us times of refreshing. Amen? But come what may, whether we experience times of trial and testing or joy and flourishing, let us triumph with Jesus by remaining faithful to him. Happy Palm Sunday, Living Hope Church. Love you all very much.